Welcome to the Inspiro Podcast, the podcast exploring personal growth, leadership, strategy, communication, and fulfillment. We are your hosts, Jason Luchtefeld and Bill Woodburn. I'm here as a dentist transitioning into a career to help facilitate individuals and their organizations towards a more fulfilling future. Hi there, I'm Bill Woodburn, and I'm a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist in Austin, Texas. I'm fascinated by the way people come together to solve problems, whether that's couples or families, dental practices or organizations. We're going to be exploring a lot of topics, and for us to be able to be free to do that, I have to let you know that this is not intended to be dental advice or counseling advice. I'm going to maybe be a little stereotypical here. I think that looks, that's a really hard concept for dentists and hygienists to wrap their heads around. They want everybody to be the all-star brusher, flosser, mouth taker, error of, and that's unrealistic. And we, sometimes it's because of, physical limitations. And so we can recommend some different tips and tricks and tools for those people. That's a fairly easy one to work around. The more difficult one is when we're dealing with somebody that is reached their tolerable limit for what they're going to do for themselves. And how do we manage that? So I'm thinking of a specific patient that I treated for a decade that That said, look, I know things are not the greatest. I know they could be better, but I'm not going to floss. I'm not going to use those pick things between my teeth. I'll tell you right now, I'll come in every two months for a cleaning if it means that I don't have to use those things. And so that was initially a hard acceptance for us as professionals that are trained that well, if you're not going to do these things, you need to go see somebody else. We are not going to supervise your neglect. And we're on our high horse, you know, riding along, feeling all proud. But in this case, this person just gave us a possible solution that is out of the ordinary. But if they're willing and able to do that to maintain their health, then why not? So, that level of communication took a while for him to admit that to us. But when he finally did it for me, it was an aha. Okay. Now we actually, we, we thought we were in agreement for a while, but we weren't. (laughs) Something finally happened for him. He probably just got fed up with us saying all the lecturing and he finally had enough. And he said, look, I'm not going to do that. And uh, so it was a great learning experience and ultimately I think a better outcome for everybody involved, but it took a while to get there. You know, when I hear that story, I think that his communication was you're not in charge. I'm in charge. Yeah. I'm in charge of my teeth. They're not, they're not your teeth. They're my teeth. Mm -hmm. I have interns and I, um, 
I just gave a, a, a talk to one of my interns that I often do with young interns is about accepting the clients as they are when they walk through the door. Mm-hmm. We may not like what they do. We may think some of the stuff is stupid, but they're there. And if you want them to accept you, you have to lead the way by accepting them. That may accept every action that they do. Actions are different than people, but accepting the person and accepting that they're doing the best they can with what they got as they walk in. And with that acceptance, it goes a long way to helping them accept you in your ideas. I'd like to tangent here for a second, if we could, and get your feedback on this idea of when treating patients. So this could be a dentist, a hygienist, or even a physician that has a patient with something like diabetes. And we inform the patient that they have this. The patient declines treatment. Mm-hmm. There is one camp that says, okay, well, we cannot see them then. And there's another camp that says, okay, we'll do what we can. We'll do what they allow us to do to try to at least keep the scales tipped on our side of the health paradigm. But every time they come in, it's a mouthful of turkey sandwiches in between the teeth. Or if it's a physician's office, it's the patient walks in and they're they're popping a Werther's in their mouth while they're getting their uh, glucose checked. Where I think we run into some ethical dilemmas of how do we either decide to treat that person or not treat that person. And I know there's communication involved in that, but there's also the philosophy of care that we do have some flexibility around in our individual offices. And then there is that moral and ethical side of it that I'm certainly not an expert on. That's being all. A, being a counselor. Yeah. And I include myself on this. Right. God, we are, we are so scared to fail. Hmm. All these professions, we're so scared to fail. And we get so angry at patients or clients that seem to be leading us toward failure, toward some sort of personal failure that we should have done better. We Mm. should have convinced them to take better care of themselves. We should have overhauled not just what we can get our hands on, but their entire lifestyle. And that that failure to do that is our personal failure. Now, this isn't some great answer to this because there are lots of different patients that require different responses. But I wonder we would have so many more options if we weren't afraid of failing. If Hmm. we didn't so immediately take on the responsibility, not for caring for the patient, but for the outcome that instead shared that with the patient, that they are going to do what they're going to do and that they come in with as much determination or self-care as they have. And that's what you got. And it may get better and it may not. So what I'm hearing from you is that we, part of the problem is that as a practitioner, it's a dilemma for me because I'm afraid that doing treatment on this person is going to fail faster. And I'm taking that personally. If I 
share that fear with the patient, I'm potentially opening a window to some sort of improved circumstances. Maybe, or maybe begin to do some personal work so that you're not afraid of the patient failing. To me, it sounds like there's a boundary problem here between uh, caregiver and patient, and it gets blurry. It's easy to do. It's easy to do in my profession. What do you mean by a boundary problem? That they become extensions of us. Uh, what happens to them happens to us. If they don't get their lives together, we have failed. Wait a minute. No, I, I, I haven't failed. I mean, they and maybe they haven't failed, but they've made some different choices than I would have made or wanted them to make. Yeah, I think that that is quite likely. Uh, I can, I can feel that that answer has some validity. <laughs> um, so. There's another side of it, though. It's a lot less prevalent in dentistry because we don't do a good job of tracking our pieces and parts like medicine does. So, for example, uh, we're getting a little off track here, but I think it's relevant. Um, in medicine, if you replace a hip, a surgeon replaces a hip on somebody, and that hip fails, that is... Uh, noted in like a database. And so there is knowledge of what hip uh, brands have had higher success rates than others and surgeon success rates versus others. In dentistry, we don't have that. We have dental implants. We have full arch reconstructions, but we have no national database of successes and failures that you can go look up to see. And so what that's done is it impacts when and how a surgeon will replace a hip. So if it is a high risk situation, they won't do it because it influences the success rate and they want to have a good success rate. The other piece I I'm imagining, I don't, I don't know too many surgeons that they know it's high risk when they go and to do it if they choose to do it. That's right. That's right. That, that there is some standard here that says we can expect this much improvement from this kind of condition. And maybe we can expect very little improvement from this other kind of condition. Yeah. And it's and it's fairly well known so that at least it removes the the uncertainty and and they can make a deliberate choice to replace this hip on this person knowing it's prone to failure, but it's the best we can do with an yeah. admittedly and scientifically validated, not so good situation. Okay. Uh, I could go down that rabbit hole, but I'm going to come back to communication. <laughs> Let's do that. Okay. One of the things you mentioned a little bit ago was the order that things are shared. Yes. So I think this is a really important one that lends itself to a couple different topics. So there was and it's still around, method for giving feedback that we're going to call the shit sandwich that, is, that was promoted for a long time. And that is when you give feedback to somebody, you give a positive thing, then you give a negative thing, and then you finish with a positive thing. 
And the idea was that because you're starting and ending with a positive thing, that that bad thing in the middle doesn't seem as bad, even though it's something that is needing correction or uh, something. Over the years that that's been done, my understanding is what's been found is that people ignore the bread and they focus on the meat. And if that meat was spoiled, that's all they can think about. So when we're giving feedback, how do we do it better? Well, it helps if you mean it. When you talk about the shit sandwich, where my brain goes is it's it's a manualized approach. Ah, People do it, not because they mean it, not because they're joining with the patient on their good health. They say, oh, I got to find something to say that's good. And then I'm going to tell them what I really want to tell them. And then I'll tell them something else that's good. Patient knows what you really want to tell them. Hmm. What if you really wanted to tell them that the state of their general health looked pretty good and that the state of their dental health had some really good foundations and you meant it and they could tell that it this wasn't a technique. This is, let's talk about your the strengths that I'm finding that we will be building on. Every house needs a good foundation. You've got one. You got, you know. I I, I remember overhearing uh, Dennis talking. I think brilliantly with with a patient about you know what what solid bone structure meant for being able to put in that implant. And I was like, you, you know, you got great bone structure. This this is what this is going to mean when we put in the implant. What it's going to mean for you down the road with an implant. There are a whole bunch of things we're not having to do because, you know, you've taken good care. You've got some good genetics. You've got something solid here. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, if I was a patient, I would love that because it was sincere. This was, a, this was a guy that saw that his implant was going to succeed because there was a good foundation. And it was just evident to the patient. And the patient wanted this guy to put that implant in because he saw yeah, good. He agrees with me. This is going to be good. Again, not not manualized. Not I have to find something good. Oh, I like the color of your teeth. No, I mean, it, it was for real. What I'm hearing you say there is that uh, intention matters. We've talked about that a few times now, that the value of intention sure. uh, comes through. And it comes through in our, our tone, our mannerisms, uh, Patients, whether they can consciously recognize it or not, are sensing that intention to some degree. The take-home message from you that I heard was say what you mean rather than making up a story to fit a script that you think is going to allow the bad news to be received better. When I was going to school, we watched a lot of films from a marvelous family therapist in the 60s called Virginia Satir. And uh, she was very intuitive. She came up with these brilliant interventions and ideas and reframings, and it was just juicy, wonderful stuff. And then I got out in the field and realized there was just one problem. I wasn't Virginia Satir. I didn't think like her. I didn't see the world like her. It's like, oh, no, no, no. This is going to have to be Bill doing this. I, I can I can I can take her as inspiration, but unless it's run through some authentic buildness, 
I'm just going to be trying stuff and it's going to be failing because I didn't really get that, that intuitive flash that led her to do this versus that or say this versus that. I, I better figure out what Bill thinks, what Bill feels, and what Bill can see in this moment. So we're swinging back to that be in the moment, you will have things to say because you will see things and you will be with the patient in that moment. And so there will be things to say and genuine things to say, and you will be able to be authentic. If you're not in the moment, kind of doesn't matter what you say, it, it does not come across well. It's very inauthentic, which doesn't mean that you're being a terrible person. I'm not mm -hmm. using inauthentic as like lying. And it's like what you're saying at the beginning. It's like, no, you're not really there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of a professional dental patient because I always observe myself and other patients when I go to my dental appointments, get my teeth cleaned or whatever. It is, it's, it's very clear. I every patient about three nanoseconds after going through the door understands that time and attention are the most valuable things in the dental office. Time and attention. It's not the fillings and the machinery or even, you know, exactly the skill. Now that, that rates up pretty high. No, it's time and attention. So when a professional, a hygienist, a treatment coordinator, a dentist shares that time and attention, the patient registers that this person is sharing the most important things in this office with me. Or on the flip side, where they're not sharing time and attention and it's like, oh, so I don't get the most important things in this office. They're being withheld from me. Mm -hmm. Now, again, are, is, is that thought process going on? No, but it's kind of a gut process that's going on. I know what's important in a dental office and I know if I'm getting it or not. So getting back to the idea of that intuitive sense of what the person is experiencing and you had a different sense of that than that mentor of yours. So I'm trying to think how we can convey that to, if we have 10 people listening, uh, maybe one or two of those are going to be good at intuitive interpretation of a person's disposition. Okay. And I'm going to say one of those, if we're lucky, is aware enough of that to articulate it. Most of us are not good at that. Or if we're kind of good at it, we don't know why. Okay. So how do we how do we teach that dentist that isn't good at it, that is doesn't have great empathy, that is trying though to create a better culture of care and empathy and comfort in their office to communicate in a way that is authentic, but authentic maybe in a way that is difficult for them. Here's the way I teach my interns. Experience first, knowledge second. My interns come in and say, oh, I, I believe that there was like a narcissistic response by the husband to the, to the wife, but the wife may be being codependent. And I said, no, stop. Tell me what you saw. Well, I saw him be narcissistic. No, no, no. What did you actually see without the labels, without mm -hmm. the jargon, without the, what did you see? What did he say? What did she say? She said what, then he said what. 
And then she said, what? And then she moved her body this way. And, and they struggle with that for a while. And then they start coming in and, and this is what I saw. Next thing is, okay, when you saw that, how did you feel? Well, I thought the wife was the first like, no, no. How did you feel when you saw that? Oh, well, I, I felt uncertain. Okay. That's where you were. You saw this, you felt that. And now what do you know? I've got the two building blocks I need here. And now I'm ready for the knowledge, not you throwing the knowledge up front, which masks the moment. And then we then we come out later saying, you know, I just I just am not terribly present. Well, no, if you if you lead with knowledge, you're not. Now, knowledge is important. Okay, before you act, you gotta put the knowledge in. But before you bring the knowledge in, you, you have to be able to observe be in the moment and observe it. You know, when you were talking about how do we teach someone how to do it, the curious thing is that it's not teaching humans how to do it because humans automatically we have everything we need to get along with other humans it's it's really built in and those things that aren't built in are part of child development and are added on and it's we spend an extraordinary amount of time and have for a couple hundred thousand years building into human beings how to get along with other human beings and some of that is real awareness of what's going on with them unfortunately and this happens in to young counselors too, is getting wrapped up in what, you know, the challenges of what will happen next and what I need to get this person to do means that I start shutting off what is my experience in this moment and I'm getting less and less authentic. What's really going on here with this person? Knowing that if I'm open to that, uh, I've got, you know, 100,000 years of uh, evolution to tell me what to do next. It's only hard to stop doing those things that we do instead. If I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, if I'm in the office talking to a patient, I should be mindful and aware that if I'm just focused on selling a treatment plan, there's a high likelihood that I'm going to lose out in having effective communication. I'll go one step farther. If you're worried about how your practice is doing and need to sell that treatment plan. Yeah. Then you're all involved in your own inner experience. You're cut off from the patient's experience, both outer and inner. Yeah. And you'll probably step wrong. Why? Because you don't have the data. You're, you're shut off from it. Mm -hmm. It's you're, you're full of your own stuff at that moment. The hardest part is for us to be able to set that aside, come to that meeting with at least enough space, doesn't have to be perfect, but enough space for the patient. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think it's also a real challenge to digest for, especially now, dentists that are 10 years and less out of school, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of debt and stresses that are accumulating makes that ability to slow down to do what you're talking about a i honestly don't have great advice for or i can't i can't say oh we'll just do this no. i feel like there's 
but there must be something there that we can say that can be helpful or supportive that may just be recognizing that that influence is there as the first step. Well, this is where we bring in that idea that dentistry is a, is a team sport. Hmm. Who in your practice has the most time to relate meaningfully to the patients? And are they given that time and given that contact? And, and is that protected and nurtured? Not like, well, they're talking to a patient, I need to give them something to do. But they're talking to a patient that is what they need to do. Is that a chair side who spends an extra moment um, making a patient more comfortable? Or a hygienist that takes an extra moment to listen to a story about somebody's kids? So I, I think sometimes we think it's always got to be the dentist. When in fact, it's a team sport. Mm. So everybody's queuing up. Um, front desk people are very busy. Uh, so I am, it always is wonderful when the front desk person and my dentist says, hello, Bill, how are you doing today? And I know I can briefly tell them and they will actually listen for a moment. Now, would I tell the dentist very briefly because he's a very busy guy. I know that front desk, less busy, more contact. They, you know, they're th those folks up there are chosen for their contact skills and for their awareness skills. And she is, she bathes me in awareness of my presence as I walk in so that, yeah, if the, if, if the doctor's having a tough day, it, it doesn't impact me as much. Chair side spends an extra moment and I'm just talking moment or two. The doctor's having a hard day doesn't impact me as much so if i was a doctor and i had a lot of bills and i had a lot of stress i'd be really looking for who in my practice is good at this and can i keep them in contact with my patient can i give them the permission the training whatever it takes to 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 tee up this patient and share these this time and attention that's so precious the patient knows about um to take the load off me yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, just so happens that's what I did as much as I could in my practice, but for different reasons. I think the reasoning you just shared that if as a, I'm going to call it a protective mechanism, like being aware that my mind is on the bills I have to pay means that I'm not communicating as effectively as I could. That is a tremendous amount of self-awareness that is needed in order to make that sort of observation of yourself and then train your team up so that you are, you're not uh, making those poor choices and you're allowing the office to, to elevate itself and you become a cog in the wheel and that's okay. I did it because I didn't think I was as good as an empathic communicator as my team was. And I thought that was a problem. And so I wanted my office to demonstrate empathy and care and comfort for people. And I became aware that I was not the best at doing that. And so I tried to get my team trained in a way that they could do that for people. So when I came in the room, I was the the expert on this topic 
that was there to help them. And the team supported that. And in very rare occasions that I needed to have some other communication things I, I could manage, but I wasn't good at it. So I think there are multiple avenues to do exactly what you're saying, Bill, in order to facilitate better care and communication with patients. And one of the things you did that I think is just absolutely wonderful and was key to this is you you accepted yourself. Hmm. This is where I am right now. I mean, a couple of years, I could be different or, or whatever, but as a dentist in this moment, in this practice, I am this way. I've got this amount of time, this amount of ability, you know, whatever. Um, and having accepted that and also having accepted that the patient needs some things that you don't have to give, you can accept both. Then it just becomes a technical problem. Okay, look around. Who in this practice does have that stuff the patient needs? Mm-hmm. Uh, who who in this practice can backstop me on this? Again, now it's a technical problem because you accepted yourself. You accepted the patient. You didn't have to say something's wrong with me because I can't do that or something's wrong with the patient because they can't do it without this. It's like, no, they need this. I need this. Is there some, is there some team member that can be the glue in here to... <laughs> To, to stick this relationship together. I think it's perfectly reasonable. And you know, now that you say this, uh, this wasn't <laughs> intentional, but I think it was an awesome outcome is I was pretty vulnerable about that with my team. And I think they then learned that it was okay for them to say, hey, with this patient, I'm not going to be the best person, but you will. Or not me, but like, so Tara was one assistant. Amanda was another assistant. They're very different people. And so they found that there were patients that were better scheduled with one or the other because they were good at nurturing or they were good at um, fact-finding and um, getting down to business. And so you started to then see that as patients were brought into the practice, talked to, evaluated, we learned their personalities and what they like and dislike, and they would naturally get funneled to the right team member to provide what they needed. So that was all done on accident, but I think was a, a beautiful accident now that I look back on it. And it, and it stemmed from your awareness hmm. of the situation and yourself in the environment and the patient in the environment. Uh, again, it's, it's, you don't have to start with the solution. You start with the awareness. The solution comes out of that. Uh, often all of us as professionals are taught, we have to show up for the situation with the, with the, the solution in hand and we're just going to do this and whoever does it fastest wins. And it's like, no, how about we show up, we take a look around, we know ourselves, we get to learn the patient. We begin to see how that fits together, how it doesn't. We we stay with that awareness even when it's uncomfortable, and then we rig a solution. Mm-hmm. That's what you did. Hey, thanks again for listening, and tune in next week. We'll have even more for you. Hope you're enjoying it. And as always, send your feedback in Podcast at gmail.com. Give us a nice rating or not okay. We can take it. Just be authentic. Thanks.